Well, this morning we will be discussing chapter 75 of the book of Psalms. Uh, We just read chapter 74, um, but let's turn there to 75. We're just going to keep reading. If you turn to 74, you should be pretty close. Um, But if not, this is on page 456 of the Pew Bible. Uh, If you're trying to find it in your own Bible, uh, if you're trying to find the book of Psalms, uh, open it about halfway and go a little bit to the left. If you're in Job, you've gone too far. If you're in Proverbs, you need to go a little further. So let's read what it says. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to talk about it. Chapter 75 of the book of Psalms. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and the wicked, do not lift your horn, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So the first thing that that caught my eye, may have caught your eye as well as I was reading, was actually in the heading. Uh, It was a, this is a psalm or a song of Asaph. And as some of you may know, about half of the psalms are written by King David. So who the heck was this Asaph guy? Well, interestingly, He was the second most credited author of the book of Psalms. He wrote about 40 different Psalms out of the 150 that we have. So it's probably a good idea to have an idea of who he is. Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, he has a connection with King David and also with his son Solomon. Asaph was a Levite, part of the priestly Israelite, Israelite tribe that lived during the time of Kings David and Solomon. Uh, and we see this in 1 Chronicles 16, along with 2 Chronicles 5, uh, which tell us that he is more or less their music minister. Um, so maybe like the Mason Smith of the day. Um, only this was, you know, just for the king and every single Israelite. So a little bit bigger crowd. Um, his job would be to organize and lead the musicians in worship. And as part of that, he wrote or inspired songs to be written. And this is one of them. We just read another psalm, Psalm 74, also a psalm of Asaph, and in that, it's a little bit more of a tone of desperation. You might, you might have picked up on that as Erica read. It's, he's asking and pleading and saying, God, show yourself what's happening. Well, this, is, this one is somewhat of an answer to that psalm. So as the, the, the uh, psalmist, or as those who were putting together the book of Psalms, rather, were organizing the chapters, they decided to put chapter 75 right after. And it's kind of a, a response to verses 23 through 23, specifically, which say, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. So... Like I said, in a way, this is placed into the book of Psalms as a response to that, as we see God replying to the people's call to defend himself. But before we get to that, let's come back to the first verse. So Asaph 
and the people are joining together to give thanks, recalling his wondrous deeds, because God's name is near. The exact occasion for this psalm is not known, so it's unclear what the precise context of it is, but what we can say is that it's applicable at most any time in our lives. We should regularly be seeking to give thanks to God for what he has done. For the Israelites, this often meant recalling the glories of, uh, glorious victories rather of God in Egypt when he brought them out, uh, brought the plagues upon their enemies, delivered them from slavery through the Red Sea, and then later out of the wilderness. They also had many other things to be grateful for, like a wise king in Solomon and in David, times of peace and prosperity, a sacrificial system ordained by God, priests that lead them in worship, daily needs being constantly met, a tabernacle and soon God's temple. Truly the list is endless. And so this is where they begin their song. What about us? Do we give praise and thanks to God for what he has done when we pray and worship? Do we often reflect on the ways that he has provided for us and delivered us? I know for me, if, if you're anything like me, uh, then you'll probably relate to this, but most of my prayers are prayers of petition, like Jared's was this morning. I pray for the needs of myself and others. And out of all my prayers, those are probably the most consistent prayers. But what about giving thanks to God for what he's done in our lives? both on a large scale, salvation and things of that nature, and on a small scale, providing for the daily needs that we have, getting us to church, uh, perhaps on time, perhaps not, but at least getting us here. <laughs> uh, I've probably mentioned this before, um, but uh, once I went to a short Christian seminar that was called something like The Secret to Joy, and uh, I'll, spoiler, I'll just give you the answer right there, that the secret was simple, gratitude to God. When God does something good on your life, you should reflect on it and reflect on it often. Do you recall his faithfulness in times of trial? Do you often remind yourself of how good God, uh, sorry, how God has always come through in just the right way and at just the right time and given him thanks for what he has done? Or, probably like most of us, do you offer up a one-time thanks God prayer and then promptly forget about it when the next crisis comes along? Or maybe you don't even think about the blessings of your life and need to simply start recounting the myriad ways that God has been there for you and given you what you needed and answered your prayers right when you needed them to happen. Talking about this actually reminds me a little bit of something that my wife used to do, uh, which was each year she would take a glass jar and she would place in it some scraps, or she would place some scraps of paper next to it, and then every time something good happened in her life, she would write a little note and put it in the jar, and then over the course of the year, she would fill up the jar with uh, what she would call blessings. So it was her, her blessings jar. At the end of the year, she would pull out all of those scraps of paper and read them, and we would, and would talk um, with me or just with God about his faithfulness and his goodness in his life over the last year. I admit, sadly, we have not actually done this in a few years, but I already have decided I want to talk with Callie about re-implementing this, even now, halfway through the year, because it truly helped foster gratitude for what God has done, because we are so quick to forget the good things He has done for us. Many of you may know that Callie and I had a, a pipe burst in our laundry room back in February during the freeze, 
and uh, we had to do some replacing of flooring and drywall and cabinets as a result. But as I've told that story, and as you've heard me recount it, hopefully besides some of the headaches, you recall another piece of the story, which is that God provided for us in that time in some very unexpected ways. We had insurance come in and that was amazing, but we also had two seemingly random clients pop up for me out of nowhere and homes closed quickly so that we had the money we needed to do the repairs and renovations exactly when we needed it to. And as I look back at that today, and as anybody who's been asking me, how's business going? I've told you business is a little slow, but I've actually been recalling that, thinking about that, you know, dwelling on that and finding hope and a good reminder in that, that, okay, the Lord provided for me when we were in need then, the Lord is good, and I can wait on his good timing. He will provide once again. So for you, maybe it's a jar, simply a piece of paper or page in your diary or a note on your phone, or maybe you have a better memory than me and don't need any of those tools. But Whatever the case, what I want you to take from this is not just to thank God for today and today's blessings, but to take time throughout your day and as a part of your, your prayer time, your devotion time, to recall his past faithfulness. And if you're a Christian, uh, I already have your first note you can add to your jar. You can thank God that he sent his son to die for your sins on the cross. That one, spoiler, you can put in every year. And one quick, quick little secret that I have, too, is you actually don't have to wait until the end of the year to open the jar. You can open it whenever you need some encouragement. So uh, that's always a good thing, too. Now, before we move, move on from verse 1, I want to make one more comment. You may have noticed that the thanks being given to God here is on account of his name being near. And this may sound like an odd phrase to most of us, but what you may not realize is that in the time of the Bible, someone's name had great significance. It was not simply what they were called, but it sort of represented their entire being, their character, who they were. Proverbs 22.1 says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Because someone's name represented, encompassed all of what a person had done and all that they were, and even those things and people associated with them. So for God's name to be near, was for God himself in all his being and goodness and quality to be near. That's why they were giving thanks to God on this occasion. Next, we see what appears to be God himself, or perhaps a prophet speaking for God, chime in and speak of the justice of God, something else for which we should be eternally grateful. He says that at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. So now we see God justifying himself and asserting that he is praiseworthy and trustworthy because he will judge justly and at the time he knows is just right. So there's two parts here. Let's take the second part first, that God will judge with equity. I think the Israelites found great comfort in this, uh, as do many Christians today, for we have a God who does not judge based on outward appearances or just the actions that we see, but he judges based on the actions and the motives of our heart, and he knows everything in our minds. He is a God who, who brings justice accordingly to the wicked. Most of us probably have some level of injustice in our lives somewhere, and the hope being given here is that even though justice does not always prevail here on earth, where sin and corruption that affects even our judicial system, but no one will ultimately and forever escape 
the justice of God. There will be justice for those who are guilty, even if it's not on this earth. Recent headlines have explained that Bill Cosby, the beloved Cliff Huxtable of the Cosby Show from back in the 80s, I know some of you weren't born then, so you can Google that, but um, he was recently released from jail. He was considered prior to this to be America's father. Well, three years ago, according to NBC News, Cosby was convicted of sexual assault. If you go on Wikipedia, you'll find that 60 women accused the actor of rape, drug-facilitated sexual assault, sexual battery, or other sexual misconduct. 60. And despite being sentenced to a paltry 10 years in jail for the charges that prosecutors were able to convict him of, on June 30th, he was freed from prison because of a procedural legal issue. When I saw this news break, I felt a mix of anger and disappointment. I don't have any personal connection to anyone involved, but I was glad to see three years ago that justice had seemingly prevailed, at least to a degree. But rest assured, despite what some of us may view as a flawed system, and it is flawed, and despite what I would describe here as a miscarriage of justice, William H. Cosby will be judged. He will face the justice of God someday, and he will not escape payment for his crimes. As we consider those in our lives who have wronged us, we should remember that this is the case for anyone who has evaded or continues to evade justice. Our God is not unaware of what they have done, said, thought, or instigated, and we don't have to seek revenge on them because God will bring justice. Back in the words of the psalm, this justice, this judgment was highlighted as being equitable and for good reason. Uh, the commentator David Estes says in his commentary on the psalms that God's fair judgment is in contrast with the arbitrary and capricious judgment of false deities that were in the nations all around Israel. So what we know uh, well, we know this to be true because if you bring someone to be judged before an idol of stone, the stone deity knows equity about as good as I know nuclear physics. And for those of you who don't know me well, I don't know the first thing about nuclear physics. I'm not even sure I'm saying the word nuclear right. So <clears throat> looking back at the first part of this verse, though, we see that God brings justice at a time he will appoint. Now, this part doesn't always rub us the right way. I saved it for the second half, even though it came before, because I think this, this part we're not always as comfortable with. We're all about God's justice for those who have done evil, and so we should be, but we're probably not as keen on waiting on God's timing. Now, for some, God may bring judgment in our lifetimes, and we may see evildoers face some divine penalty for their sin on earth, but for all evildoers, truly all sinners, justice will be brought in God's perfect timing when judgment comes to all. Now, that doesn't mean it will be easy to wait, but though I don't want to be too cliche, we know that God's timing is truly the best and perfect timing. God then goes on in uh, verse 3 to root his justice in the sovereignty that he has over all things. Let's look back at verse 3. Uh, verse three. He says, when the earth totters and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. 
I recently watched a movie with my wife. Uh, it was called The Terminal. It's a Tom Hanks movie. One of those movies that uh, kind of always makes me tear up uh, in places, so I love watching it. Um, <clears throat> and in one scene in the movie, it's kind of a short scene, it's not really very consequential to the plot, but there's a, an Indian man who is entertaining a couple during their dinner, and he's juggling and doing things like that, and it's really easy to miss this, but uh, as they're leaving, walking out the door, there's a quick shot of him spinning plates on top of some very narrow wooden rods. So if you've ever seen plate spinning, uh, I would encourage you to Google it, uh, if you've never seen it, um, it's pretty cool. Uh, Google it after service, preferably. Um, but uh, the basic idea is that it's a balancing act where the performer keeps plates spinning around uh, as they precariously balance on these rods. And if the performer or juggler stops spinning them, they come crashing down. To me, this is the type of image that might come to mind as I read about the earth totters. It's the idea of an earth that cannot keep moving or keep from crashing without assistance. However, here God is the one keeping the earth up and not a juggler, and not also by some flimsy wooden rods, but with mighty pillars. But just like the plate spinner, should God remove the support under the earth, it too would fall apart. Now you might be thinking at this point, Nick, this is not very scientific. The earth is not flat and does not sit on pillars, and you would be right. But this is a wonderful example of God meeting his people where they are. God is speaking to the Israelites on their terms. He did not come to this psalm to correct their lack of scientific understanding that the earth is actually round. No, he came to speak to them on their terms using language that would make sense to them just as he does with us today. And after all, we do continue to be finite beings with a limited understanding of the universe. Unless we be arrogant and dismissive of God's word because we think we're so incredibly advanced and enlightened today, scientifically, I would imagine that in 4,000 years, people will look back at our understanding of the world and the universe and think just how archaic and antiquated and maybe wrong it was back then. So despite our cultural period of enlightenment that we've gone through and advances in astronomy, we will never see the world as it is truly with full understanding until the time at which God grants us or may grant us that understanding on the other side of eternity. Hebrews 1.3 takes the idea even further and says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. How incredible that God is holding not only everything out there in the universe in its place, but every molecule of your body so that as we were saying this morning, you can take your next breath because it's God's breath in you. That is the common grace of God for all men. So what's the point? Well, that even in chaos, we can take comfort. That despite the tottering world, be it our own personal world or the political state of our world or other nations, God remains in control and we can find comfort even amidst chaos, knowing he has not lost control and he's aware of our plight. We talked about a second ago not being arrogant enough to believe that, that uh, we've reached the pinnacle of understanding in our time, and God goes on to address boasting in general in the next two verses. So he says next, to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn, do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck, 
So we probably understand what, it, what he's saying when he commands us not to boast, but um, what the heck is he talking about with horns being lifted up? Well, according to Charles Spurgeon, the word horn is used in the Hebrew metaphorically to express either honor or strength. He says, quote, the horn was the emblem of boastful power. Only the foolish, like wild, savage beasts, will lift it up on high. But they assail even heaven itself with it, as if they could gore the Almighty himself. In dignified majesty, he, God, rebukes the inane glories of the wicked, who beyond measure exalt themselves in the day of their fancied power. End quote. Perhaps you might recall a series we did on the book of Esther a few months ago. If you were with us, you may remember the man Haman, who was the king's right-hand man, but who had some serious issues with pride. Ultimately and unknowingly, Haman built the gallows that eventually would be used for his own hanging due to his pride and self-aggrandizement. For truly, no one has any success or any wealth or family or anything good in their lives that does not ultimately find its source in God. So we should not boast since we know that these gifts that we, we have do not come from us, but from the Lord. As Job says at the beginning of his book in chapter 1, verse 21, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. So no matter what we have, it is all from Him. And we can also be, it can also be taken back by Him. So we walk humbly before this God who judges with equity at the right time, as He sees fit, when He sees fit, providing for our needs, and holding all things together. This almost then responds to God's word, affirming what God is saying. He says, verse 6, For not from the east, nor from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. So the wilderness here uh, is often described, or is likely uh, describing the south of the city. So this passage could be indicating not from the east, not from the west, nor from the south, but only from the north. It was not from any human power or created deity that help would come. It would instead come from the north. And the north was considered to be a Godward direction. Like today, we might say, look up when we're talking about looking to God. In those times, God was also in the north. Estes, again, in his commentary, says that what he sees in this verse is that, quote, humans, uh, he sees humans drawing on their own resources cannot successfully exalt themselves, end quote. Instead, they must look to God, remain humble, and he will exalt them if he so chooses. And that's what verse 7 says. It is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. We see echoes of this in Mary's Magnificat. Um, her Magnificat is in uh, Luke 1:50, whereas in Luke 1, and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings this song as she is uh, recalling the birth and, and just the, the joy of being the chosen one to bring Jesus into this world. And she says in, in 152 that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Later, Jesus himself in Matthew 23, 12, says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So we're again reminded of God being the final judge and that he is the one who is ultimately in power, raising up some, lowering others, 
giving status and success to those he chooses, and deciding between good and evil no matter how much we might think we know better or in charge of our own success. So you might be asking yourself the question, I think it's a good question, uh, I wrote it, but um, you might be asking your question perhaps thinking of a specific person, maybe someone you know or a historical figure. Wait, so what you're saying is that God allowed that person to ascend to a position of power? Scripture says yes, but we must remember and we must not uncouple this truth from the fact that God also can and does bring them down as well, and he brings judgment on them when he chooses to. As we discussed in, in verse 2, at the right time, according to God, they will be judged. Verse 8 goes on to speak of the wrath of God that will be the lot of those who have done evil. This is a scary verse honestly. It says, for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup foaming with wine, with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drink it down to the dregs. Once again, we see that the wicked will not escape justice. Some may see partial judgment on earth, but we will see, all will see justice before God on the day of his judgment. The wicked will not escape. Those who have committed great atrocities have not escaped the eyes of God. Unlike Sauron and the Lord of the Rings that could only really look in one direction at a time. Sorry if that's a nerdy reference for some of you. John always references Lord of the Rings, so I had to. But, um, but he could only look at one direction at a time. But but unlike him, God's eyes are not distracted or obscured by anything. He sees straight to the heart of every person at all times. So, perhaps understandably, the Jews took this to be good news, uh, as well they should, and yet the Jews only understood this when this was written in part. Those who know Jesus today, or ever since Jesus came to the earth, they know the fuller story that Though many of us have been as wicked or maybe worse than those who may one day drink of this cup of wrath, if we are in Christ, we can take comfort. We can find joy and peace in what we find in Matthew 26, 42. And that's where Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and drank it for us. Now, I want to pause for a minute because this is no little thing. I want us to think about that. For all those who are wicked, there is a cup of God's wrath that will be poured down their throats and they will drink every last drop. And lest we forget, we were once those wicked people ourselves. We were destined for God's wrath. We committed atrocities great and small and did things that would frankly make us blush if they were known to everyone. But God saved us from that destiny and replaced it with an eternity with him. He sent Jesus to take the cup filled with all the power and the wrath of God that we deserve, and he drank from it as he was tortured, as he was beaten, as he literally had the flesh hanging off of his body and was forcibly nailed to a rugged piece of wood. All so that we wouldn't have to so that our sin was atoned for, was paid for in full once 
and for all. What a glorious gift we have if we are in Christ, and praise be to God that we do not have to drink from that cup. Indeed, in light of this, verse 9 seems fitting. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. To this God who takes on our punishment for us, we will bring praise and sing to him. We will worship him for what he has done and what he's still doing. And the Jews here reflected on this God. They called him the God of Jacob. And they're evoking this idea of a God who fulfills his promises as he did to Abraham, God's grandfather, who, would, uh, who God promised in Genesis 22 and 26 to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And the Israelites here are the fulfillment of that promise. Finally, in verse 10, we are reminded one last time that God will bring down the proud and arrogant and raise up those who are humble. <clears throat> who are humble. Excuse me. Estes says it this way, <clears throat> quote, God will bestow power and prestige on his faithful people, end quote. Now, perhaps that's in this life. Perhaps that's in the next. But whatever the case, God will judge and exalt rightly. So what can we take from this psalm? How can we apply this to our lives? Well, I have three ways. First, remember and have gratitude. Remember what God has done. Reflect on it. Recall it. Don't forget it. Consider what he has done in your life and in the lives of those around you. Set aside time today to sit and start a list or write, scraps of, uh, write it on scraps of paper and put it in a, in a jar. <laughs> Remember how he has come through in hard times for you, for those around you, uh, for spiritual needs, material needs, and anything else. Take time to remember because you will find encouragement there. I'm going to use a quote, another quote from Charles Spurgeon because he's much more eloquent than me. Um, I think he says it very well. So he says, quote, Unto thee, O God, do we give thanks, not to ourselves, for we were helpless, but to Elohim, who heard our cry and replied to the taunt of our foes. Never let us neglect thanksgiving. He goes on, as the smiling flowers gratefully reflect their lovely colors, the various, in their lovely colors, the various constituents of the solar ray, so should gratitude spring up in our hearts after the smiles of God's providence. Unto thee we give thanks. We should praise God again and again. Stinted gratitude is ingratitude. For infinite goodness, there should be measureless thanks. Faith promises redoubled praise for greatly needed and signal differences. For that thy name is near, thy, wonder, thy wondrous works declare. God is at hand to answer and do wonders. Adore we then the present deity. We sing not of a hidden God who sleeps and leaves the church to her fate, but of one who ever in our darkest day is most near, a very present help in trouble. End quote. Second, second thing to take away from this psalm is don't be boastful. Not about your faith, not about your life, not about your gifts, but be humble and share what you have with others. Truly, we all deserve God's wrath. Let's not be fooled into thinking otherwise. But we who are in Christ have been freed from it for good. And all have the opportunity to do the same and be delivered from the bitter cup that will be poured out 
on the wicked if they do not repent and confess Jesus as Lord. So share this good news with those you know, with those you love, and even those you meet. Because the Lord's coming and final judgment may be closer than you think, but for now there's still time. Finally this morning, trust in God's timing for ultimate judgment. I'm not saying that there should be no justice here on earth, but rather that we should expect imperfect justice here in a broken, sin-filled world and perfect justice later before an almighty God. Whether we see justice now or whether it comes later, rest, find peace in God's justice, for He is the perfect and all-knowing judge. Again, nothing will escape his seeing, and all will be laid bare before him at the judgment. So we need not take vengeance into our own hands because we know that God says, both in the Old Testament and New, Deuteronomy and Romans, he says this, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. We have been freed from being consumed by it. So we release it unto the Lord we, so that we may live in peace, trusting that God is the just and final judge at the very best time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we are so grateful that you are this just and perfect judge. Uh, Lord, we, we try to emulate you in our world with courts and judges, and uh, Lord, uh, there are good things that come from those, and, and we don't shun those, but we're also still imperfect. There's also still sin and corruption that exists on this earth. So we thank you that no matter what happens here, justice will still be served by you. Father, we also thank you that we who are in Christ do not have to experience the wrath of God for what we've done. You took that to the cross for us. And for that, Father, we are grateful. Lord, help us this week, this month, as we go out from this place as we think about the things that you have done, to remember them, to recall them, to take them down, write them in places where we will look at them and be encouraged by them, because it's so easy for us to, to simply go about our day and, and forget, and Lord, not be encouraged when we should be by all the ways you've been faithful to us. Help us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.